Let us pray that we might receive God's holy word. Holy Spirit, come now and help us see what Christ is doing in our midst. Enable us to hear him speaking to us in these holy words of scripture. Teach us his ways so that we may tell others of the ministry, mission, and kingdom of our elder brother, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 8 to 14. The word of our Lord. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. John Ortberg tells a story says, many years ago, it was early on in our marriage, and my wife and I sold our Volkswagen Beetle, and we bought our very first real piece of nice furniture. It was a sofa. It was a pink sofa, but for that kind of money in the 1980s, it was called a mauve sofa. And the man at the sofa store told us all about how to take care of it, and so we took it home, and we had very small children in those days, and... Uh, uh, uh. And of course you know what the number one rule was After we brought home the mauve sofa Don't sit on the mauve sofa Don't play near the mauve sofa Don't eat around the mauve sofa Don't touch the mauve sofa Don't breathe on the mauve sofa Don't think about the mauve sofa. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit, but on this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for on the day that you sit on the mauve sofa, you will surely die. And then one day came the fall. There appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain. A red jelly stain. My wife called the man at the sofa factory. He told her it was bad news. And so she assembled our three children and assembled them to look upon the stain on the sofa. Laura was about four years old. Mallory was about two and a half. And Johnny was maybe six months old. And she said, children... Do you see that? That is a stain. That is a red stain. That is a red jelly 
stain. And the man at the sofa store says, it's not coming out, not now, not for all eternity. Children, do you understand how long eternity is, children? Eternity is how long we're going to sit here until one of you tells me which one of you put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa. For a long time, they sat there until finally Mallory cracked. I knew she would. She said, Laura did it. Laura said, no, I didn't. And then it was dead silence for the longest time. And I knew that none of them would confess to putting the stain on the sofa because they had never seen their mom that mad in their lives. I knew none of them was going to confess putting the stain on the sofa because they knew if they did, they would spend an eternity of time in the timeout chair. And I knew that none of them would confess to putting the stain on the sofa because, in fact, I was the one who put the stain on the sofa, and I wasn't saying nothing. Not a word. Here's the truth. We've all stained the sofa. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at Deuteronomy at God's call to us, having stained a sofa, to live a radically changed life as a, as a people who are holy to God. How is it even possible? We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 11. I'm going to read it. We'll project it if you want to follow along there in your pew Bible. If you like, it's page 285. This is the word of the Lord, Deuteronomy chapter 7 words written over 3,000 years ago for our sake. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, the decrees, and the laws I give you today. What do we see here? What we see is that God is calling us as his people to a radically changed life. He calls us here at people who are, in verse 6, holy to God. And 
And I know in our culture in the United States, when we talk about being holy, typically it's with a snicker. We put it in sneer quotes. You think of the church lady on Saturday Night Live. You think of people who think they're holier than thou and a sense of of superiority. But, But the biblical notion of holiness is something different. The biblical term means set apart, consecrated, set apart for special use. It's like when I was growing up in my household, uh, our family, by which I mean my mom, had two sets of dishes. Any of y'all grow up in houses with two sets of dishes? I don't know where the tradition came from, but somewhere 5,000 years ago, some grandmother decided that everybody needed a special set of dishes that never get used. And so we had the regular dishes that actually are in the regular kitchen cabinets that we ate off every day. And then we had the special set, which were set apart for company, special guests special occasions. Uh, And that's kind of what God is doing with humanity. He's saying, okay, there's all of humanity, but then there's a special subset within humanity that I am setting apart for special use, setting apart as my possession, as my beloved possession of people who are holy or set apart to me for my use. What it it means is, is, is waking up every morning and saying, okay, Lord Jesus Christ, you're the son of God and I am reporting for duty. Give me my commands, Lord. Who do you want me to love today? Who do you want me to encourage today? How do you want me to sacrifice today? I'm reporting for duty. You're my Lord, and I am reserved for your use. This certainly involves being set apart or holy to God, verse 6, but also in verse 9, it involves the affections. It involves loving God. Uh, These are meshed together, loving God and being holy to God consecrated to God, and it means making it our aim that even as broken sinners who, who have stained the sofa many, many times, that we would make our focus on keeping God's commandments. He says it in verse 9, know, know therefore that the Lord God is God. He is the faithful God. He keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Remember when Jesus said, those who love me will obey what I say. Those who love me will obey my commandments. These are all sides of the same coin, a life holy to God, set apart as his special possession, being prepared to, to live a life of love, seeking him first, delighting in him, you know, enjoying his presence and trying to glorify him with our, our broken, fragile lives, imperfectly though we may, and making our focus on, on doing what he says even when we don't want to, especially when we don't want to. You know, a a generation of Christians before us uh, never would have made it their goal to sin less than they used to. Their goal was to not sin, to not dishonor God, to not break covenant with Jesus. We, I think, uh, 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 in our, our rightful focus on God's grace, naively sometimes think that grace means less focus on obeying God when the Bible says it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to sinlessness, sin and, and godlessness. Um, you see, it's because sin is so incredibly addictive. I know it too well. It's so powerful. Bitterness is one of those things, just by example, that always enslaves you. It's not just that it breaks the rule, it's that it breaks you. Unforgiveness, as Scripture continually calls us to forgive those who, who, have, who are indebted to us as we have been 
forgiven. Unforgiveness. You think by your unforgiveness and your grudging heart that you're taking the person who hurt you and you're locking them in a cage. And yet you don't understand that in your bitterness and your unforgiveness, the one you have locked in a cage is yourself. It's enslaving. If I could speak discreetly this morning, uh, understanding we've got a very broad audience of all ages, um, you know, probably the biggest struggle, not just for men, but increasingly for women in our culture, is, is, is pornography. Um, you know, when I was a kid, it was the kind of thing you had to really work to find. And now we've all got smartphones in our pockets, and I see the slavery. I see the addiction. And, uh, and, I, and I know it well. You know, I'm about 15 years sober. But, uh, but I am absolutely an addict, and I would go back to it in a heartbeat given the wrong circumstances and given a lack of accountability because I'm weak, and I was never designed to be holy to God on my own. I was only designed to be holy to God in community with brothers and sisters in Christ who hold me up, who encourage me, who, who protect me in so many ways, and yet it has cost me a great deal. Yeah, I mean, I remember 20 years ago... Um, Colin Ravenhill, you remember him when I got my first computer with an internet connection? The first thing he did the first day I unpackaged it is he brought over this floppy disk, and I think it was actually, I don't think it was the big floppies, I think it was the small floppy, but he brought it over, put it in there, asked, what are you doing? He says, it's Net Nanny. I was like, what's Net Nanny? It's the nanny that's going to watch what you do online. And I spent the next year trying to figure out how to get around Net Nanny. And you say, well, Greg, we know you, you're not that kind of person. <laughs> I did it. I'm that kind of person. We can never say, I'm not the kind of person. This isn't really like me. Of course it's like me. Because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. It's a condition. It's a problem that we all have because we're broken. And, and yes, for me it means, hey, every week I am meeting for accountability and prayer with a brother for the last 15 years. Uh, it means I have you know, software on my phone and it is continually monitored. It means sometimes I'm asked difficult questions. It means uh, uh, getting up in the morning when I don't feel like it. It means, uh, you know, all sorts of restrictions. But the alternative for me is absolute slavery. But God calls us to be a people holy to him. I remember back in the worst of it, I would skip out on meetings that were very important. I would skip out on relationships because I was an addict. And I was the addict that was once every six months, not even the everyday addict, but it was absolute slavery, and I know what it did to my soul. It destroyed it, because that's what sin always does. You know, I remember the numbness I felt, and how, you know, often when other guys will ask, will, will talk to me, and they say, Greg, I just feel empty on the inside. I just feel dead on the inside. I feel numb. And whether I ask it or not, one of the questions in the back of my mind is, well, how long is it since you've been looking at something online that you know you should? Because it has an effect. You know, no one ever prepares you for what happens when you start to gain freedom from sexual sin. Um, you know, they don't prepare you because one of the things we do in sexual sin specifically is we are numbing ourselves. You're numbing yourself from the pain. You're numbing yourself from the loneliness that you would feel. You're numbing your soul from the shame. You're numbing yourself from all those things that make you feel worthless and small and afraid and inadequate. 
and yet what happens, it's, 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 it's anesthesia. It's like propofol for the soul. And yet what happens is it also numbs your joy. And it numbs the delight you have in a relationship with other people. And it numbs your affection. And it numbs your delight. And it numbs and deadens your compassion and your sensitivity and your empathy. And it starts to affect your ability to actually relate to real live human beings with whom God has actually given you relationship. And when you come off it, when you start to gain free, guess what happens to all those emotions that you haven't been feeling for the last decade because you've been you know, engaged in, 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 in anesthesia, is all those feelings come back. The loneliness is still there. The shame is still there. The inadequacy is still there. The isolation is still there, and it all comes back. Sometimes you become a basket case for a while once you get free, and yet what also comes back is the compassion, and you regain the sensitivity, and you regain your sense of empathy, And you regain your ability to care for the people that God has put you in. You regain your ability to cry and to delight, to have joy. It's what we call getting your soul back. And it's a beautiful thing. If you're here this morning, and I know most of you statistically probably are, man or woman, because it has no gender difference. And if you're listening to me up here and you're thinking, gosh, I need help. I need to let somebody in. You will never break free on your own. Not now, not five years from now, not 25 years from now. It does not go away as you get older. It does not get better. It has to be put to death. And you cannot do that on your own because we are not the persons who are holy to God. We are the people who are holy to God. And and Deuteronomy is all about learning to be the people of God. You have to bring in community, and it's the most terrifying thing you may ever have to do. But, friends, I'm a pastor, and this is going on the Internet, and and there are all ages and people. There are angry people in the South who are mad at me already, who are going to jump all over me for this. But the reason I am up here talking to you as a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church of America, telling you that I am to this day, 15 years later, still a sin addict, And I will go back to it in a heartbeat. And I'm telling all of you, look at the big shameful pastor because I'm washed and I'm free and I want you to be free. And if I can do this in public with kids and women and men and everybody and throw it on the internet, then I'm hoping that will give you the courage in Jesus to tell just one person in private so that you can get better. You need a group of guys, we'll find you a group of guys. You need a group of ladies, we'll find you a group of ladies. You've got pastors, you've got shepherds. This isn't the mega church with 5,000 people where you've got to go on a website and click in in order to get special care. We're here to help. But it's the path of holiness. Learning to be free. Learning to live as people who, who have a liberation. And sometimes, in all honesty, obedience is all we have. He says in verse 11... Take care to follow the commands and the decrees and the laws I give you today. Take care. Tim Keller says this. He says, if you only obey God's word when it seems reasonable or profitable to you, well, that isn't really obedience at all. Obedience means you cede someone an authority over you that is there even when you don't agree with him. God's law is for times of temptation. Uh, He gives us that. 
All right, Tim, where'd you do with my fourth page? Middle of a quote. Tim. There we are. God's law is for times of temptation. He says this, Tim Keller says, we turn to the law of God because sometimes we need to do things just because God says so. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve not to eat the tree, but he never told them why. Some of us simply hate to follow a direction unless we know all the reasons why the direction was given it, how it's going to benefit us, and so on. But God was saying to Adam and Eve, I think, obey this direction, not because you understand, but because you recognize that I'm your God and that you are not. Do God's will not because it's exciting, though it will eventually be an adventure, not because it's going to meet your needs, though it eventually will be a joy. Not because you understand why this is the path of wisdom, though it will eventually become more clear. Do it because he is your Lord and Savior and you are not. Do it because it's the law of the Lord. And if you do it, if you obey him, even in the little things, you will know God and you'll know yourself and you're going to find grace and you're going to love your neighbor and you're simply going to honor him as your God. Sometimes when you can't see why God commands something, when you see no way his commands are going to bring you life, when what the Bible is telling you is going to cost you dearly and you can't bear the thought of the consequences, sometimes when every argument sounds hollow and God doesn't make any sense at all, sometimes in those instances, obedience is all we have. You are my God, not my will, but your will be done. God is calling us this radically changed life to be a people who are holy, who are set apart to him. So, why is it that this is so difficult? This is difficult because like the Israelites, we are used to living as slaves. He says it there in verse 8, they had been enslaved in Egypt, and during centuries in Egypt, the Israelites learned how to live as slaves. They learned how to be in bondage. They learned how to live as if they didn't have a God. They learned how to live as if the Egyptians were their God. They learned to jump when the Egyptians said jump, to lay low when the Egyptians said lay low, and to hand over their kids when the Egyptians said hand over your kids. They learned bondage. And that's what Paul describes in Romans 6 and Romans 7 as he talks about how as Christians we have lived our entire lives enslaved to sin until Jesus comes into our life. And then once we have a new Savior, we have a new Lord. We have a new master and we're no longer enslaved to sin. We're instead enslaved to God or more appropriately, we are now sons or daughters of God. And yet what we're used to is living in bondage not just physically, but spiritually. And we forget the power that patterns and habits have when you've spent your entire life learning one way of doing things. I know I can see a situation arise, and instinctively I have an approach to dealing with it, which may or may not be God's will. But it's a learned behavior. It's like a blink. It's just your default way of doing things. Um, And I see this so often. You know, it's like the husband who who was hurt very badly in his life, very badly early on and frequently, who has learned how to be a victim. He's learned how to be a slave. And because his whole life he was a victim, 
and he was abused and he was mistreated, then he then takes that imprint, that paradigm, that set of tools, that way of interpreting and understanding and dealing with the world, and he then takes that into his marriage. And, you know, five years later, he and his wife are sitting around the kitchen counter, and she says, I don't really feel like pork chops tonight. And he's sitting here thinking, I can't believe she would wound me this way. And he's feeling so much intensity and hurt and woundedness. And it's not because of what his wife just did. It's because of what was done to him so much earlier when he was learning to live like a slave. And so he interprets himself as a victim when victimization may not be happening. And he can't help it because he's learned to live as a slave. You can take him out of slavery, but it's the question of getting the slavery out of him so that he can actually learn to live as a free man, the Lord's freedman, free of that instinctive pattern that we learned. For some of us, it's, it's bitterness. For some of it, it's, it's, it's unforgiveness. For some of us, it's gossip. For some of us, it's sexual in nature. But all of us have our instinctive ways of living that we learned outside of Christ when we were in bondage. And the Lord calls us to a whole new pattern of life. Romans 12, 1, you know, to, 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 to actually live with a new pattern of life which is our spiritual act of worship. I, I read a couple weeks ago in the news about a guy in Texas who was doing yard work. He's in his backyard and he sees this huge four-foot rattlesnake going through his yard and he's got kids and he's got pets and he's freaking out. So he goes and grabs a flat-edged shovel and he chops it right in half, slices the snake's head off. The snake is dead. It wiggles around for a little bit and then just lies there dead and he lets it sit for about an hour. And then an hour later, he comes and he picks up the the long body side and and it's dead as it can be. And he picks up the head and he's walking to the trash can when the head instinctively flips around, bites him and injects so much venom into his bloodstream that he passes out. He has to be airlifted to a hospital and he barely survives with massive amounts of anti-venom because with poisonous, venomous snakes, even after they are dead, the instinct remains. And it's a picture of the Christian soul. Friends, we've all got a severed snake head somewhere in us. And for some of you, uh, it may be one kind of area. For others, it may be another. But it's those instincts. When we learn to be slaves, the way we deal with stuff, the way we assume stuff, the way we spend money, the way we talk about people, the way we handle disagreements, the way you defend yourself instinctively when criticized instead of doing what the Bible says of being slow to speak and quick to listen and making sure that you're understanding them and actually loving them in their woundedness instead of defending yourself, which you don't have to do because Jesus is your only righteousness and you're not going to embellish that resume because it's perfect. Learning to live freely when our instinct is to live as slaves. That's why Paul could say, that as a Christian, he had died with Christ to the power of sin and he was set free and he no longer had to sin. And yet at the same point, he turns right around and says, but I am still a slave to sin. Not objectively, but functionally, because it's how I've always learned to live. This is a call to learn a different way of of living in response to God that is free from what we were always taught. Craig Barnes talks about a kid in... uh, in his home growing up, his dad was a pastor, and he talks about the day that dad showed up from work with a 12-year-old and said, kids, I brought something new for us. 
His name was Roger, and Roger's mom and dad had both died in drug overdoses, and there were no grandparents, and there were no extended relatives, and there was no one else in the drug house who they would trust to actually take this child in. And so Roger was brought in, and he became one of their sons, and yet it was a very traumatic time because Roger had spent his entire life you know, fending for himself. And so they're trying to explain to this little 12-year-old, can you imagine what an awful age to have your parents die? And yet, in some sense, they had died so much longer, so so much long before, because they were never there, because they were druggies. In a drug house, they were enslaved, and they couldn't love him. And yet, here he is in this household with a family that has chosen him and is loving him and is treasuring him. And yet... They're constantly having to say, no, 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 Roger, you don't have to yell in this household in order to be heard. You learned that growing up, but here we love you, and we're going to listen to you, and we want to take care of you, and so you don't have to yell because we're going to hear you. No, Roger, you don't have to steal things when we're not looking because if you just let us know that you need something, we're going to take care of you and, and give you whatever's best for you. Roger, you don't have to go at 3 in the morning downstairs to the kitchen to steal dried spaghetti, and you don't have to hide it between your mattresses in case someday we don't feed you because we're going to feed you every single day, multiple times every day, Roger, because we love you. You don't have to be that live this kind of sneaky, deceptive, distrusting, angry, loud life because you're loved, because you're treasured, because you belong now. You have a family now. We are so much like Roger, learning in this life to no longer live as the slave that we were, but to actually live treasured as a people who belong to our Lord. We shouldn't expect anything different. Spent a long time learning to be a slave. And now, friends, the good news is that you're a people who are treasured. Let's remind ourselves of who we are. You can't trust yourself to always do that. I know I can't. Uh, When you realize that you failed, that you've blown it, there may be for some of you a voice somewhere in the back of your head. And that voice is saying something like this. It may be in your dad's voice, your mom's voice, or somebody's voice that you don't recognize. But it's a voice that's saying, you are so disgusting. You are such a disappointment. You should be ashamed of yourself. Do you think God could love someone like you? And the Bible describes this as the voice of the accuser. He wants you to disbelieve the gospel, to despair of God's love. He wants to crush your hope and your joy and your delight in God by turning you inward on yourself. We can't trust our emotions. We can't trust our instincts. We can't trust ourselves to always remember who God says we are as a people, holy to him, a treasured possession, chosen, and loved. All by myself, I might end up very proud and blind to my weakness because I forget that I'm broken. Or I might end up spiraling downward into despair because I forget that I'm loved by God. And that means that you and I have to learn to let other people in. You need your church, your sisters in Jesus, your brothers in Christ who can tell you when the relationship you're in is a bad one. Who can love you and support you and call you out on your critical spirit. Your need for your brothers to tell you that what your dad always said about you is not true. 
It's your spiritual family who can remind you of the promises of God and direct you outside yourself to the blood of Jesus which cleanses you, the righteousness of Christ that clothes you, the promises of God that give you hope and a future, the comfort of the Holy Spirit who is there with you in the midst of hardship and sorrow. But that means letting others in, believers who have your back, and that takes time and it takes intentionality. But I know the joy that I feel when I realize that a soul has just trusted me with something that they're deeply ashamed of and they've never told a soul, that they would trust me to let me into their struggle, to know them and their brokenness. Remember this passage, it's speaking to us as a people of God. Don't live in fear, but let them in. He calls us to this life, radically transformed life as a people holy to God. And yet that's difficult. Why? Because we're used to living as slaves. And yet what he gives us here is this new identity. So how is it actually possible to live in that identity? Friends, it's possible because in verse 6, God says that I chose you. And he goes on to say, I chose you in verse 7 and 8, not because you were more numerous than other people, because you were the tiniest, not because you were stronger, because you were weak. It's something in the New Testament that applies to us on the very individual level in Romans 9, when Paul says that this is true even of us whom God has chosen from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. It's, it's true corporately, but also individually that he chose you. He claimed you, not because he looked down the corridor of time and saw how faithful and willing you would be because you wouldn't have been had it not been for his grace reaching in and plucking you out of the fire and saying you I love you I treasure you I claim you I have chosen verse 6 it's like in a relationship you know when when the kids are down for the night and it's just the two of you and the lights are dim and there's a fire crackling in the fireplace and the two of you have been snuggling on the couch, slowly swirling around a glass of something red and wonderful. And, and then your wife asks you, Honey, do you love me? Of course I love you, honey, Schnookums love muffin doll. Girl, you know I've always loved you. And then she stares off in the distance and she goes in for the kill. Honey, why do you love me? At this point, you know it's a trap. And you're not really sure how to answer. Well, honey, you know your Uncle Larry is absolutely loaded, and he's 97 years old, and so I just figured eventually I'm going to get a windfall with you. No, you're not going to say that. You know, honey... I love you because the first time I saw you across campus, I saw your hourglass figure. I saw your beautiful face without a single line, without a single crease, your hair flowing in the wind as your dainty little body galloped across campus weighing all of 90 pounds, and you were just so beautiful. And I thought, oh, I just love you. You're going to be the one for me. She's not able to keep that up. I mean, after three kids and a couple decades when the lines are cracking all around the eyes and on the forehead and things that used to be, you know, concave or convex and there's all sorts of sagging going on, you know, that, that's not going to help her. And so you think, oh, I'll spiritualize it. Honey, I saw your godly character. And she knows better than that. And so... 
The only thing at that point that you can tell her that's not going to put her on a performance treadmill or insult her or somehow do damage, the only thing you can say at that point is, I love you because I chose you and you are the only woman for me and nothing is ever going to change that. And here the Lord our God is saying, I love you because I chose you and you are my people. And you can spend all night and day figuring out how that intersects with free will. He doesn't care. He's saying, I love you and I chose you and you are the only people for me. It's a message of grace that enables us to live out an identity because you have been called and loved and you have been, in verse 6, treasured. His treasured possession because the Lord has set his affection on you. In verse 7, when a man sees a woman and he longs for her and he desires her and his, his heart is filled with delight in her, that is the language that God is using when he says, I set my affection upon you. I have loved you. I have treasured you. Not because of your faithfulness, but because of my choice, my love you have become my treasure. Brian Chappell talks about some friends of of his and Kathy's. They had a son who in his mid-teens, about 15 years old, rebelled against them and against God. He didn't want anything to do with God. He didn't want to do anything with the Bible, with church, with Jesus, with mom, with dad, with brothers, with sisters. He was done. And for four years, he protested his innocence and he made innumerable promises that he would straighten up. But every single excuse was unjustified and every single promise he made was broken. And this family, they went through so much pain and embarrassment in front of others, discouragement that was inflicted on them. Uh, The wife confided that, in all honesty, she did not think that she loved her son anymore. Her heart had grown hard. She was cold toward her own child. And and yet what melted it again was a cry of desperation. It was after another shameful escapade, followed by more protests of innocence from the son, that the mother, she just walked away. She said, I'm done. And as this young man sat alone on the sofa in the family room, he began leafing through the family photo album. There were pictures there of better and happier days, and they filled him with increasing emotion. At this point, he was 19 years old. He'd been in rebellion against God for four years. And as he looked at sitting on the sofa, alone in the living room, looking at family pictures, there was one photograph that struck him with so much poignancy, far more than the rest, and emotion filling his heart. He called his mom and asked her to please come into the room. And to look at this photograph. And the photograph showed the son as a young child under the approving smile of his mother. And the teen pointed to the photo and she said, Mom, when I see this picture, I understand why you don't know if you can love me anymore. Because in this picture, your eyes are filled with hope as you look down on your little boy. But mom, I dashed all of your hopes. Please forgive me for dashing your hopes. What did the mother do? But her hardness broke 
And she embraced her boy with a heart so filled with renewed love and compassion and delight and even pride in her son. What moved her was not the protests of his innocence that continued before that for four unending years. What moved her heart was not his fresh promises to do better, but rather she was moved by his statement of absolute desperation. And the Bible tells us, friends, that this is what moves the heart of God as well. Because God treasures you. He knows you by name. He is never, ever impressed by your righteousness. He is drawn to those who know themselves to be broken. His heart is drawn to those who know themselves to be damaged. If you know that you are sinful, if you know that you are broken, if you know that you are spiritually impoverished, Jesus says, you are blessed. Blessed are they who are poor spiritually. Jesus, a friend of sinners, is drawn like a magnet to your very shameful human brokenness. That is what drove him to the cross because he treasured you, his people. He set you apart to be holy to him. He loves you and he is not willing to live unless he can live with you at his side as a people holy to him, treasured, his heart drawn to you precisely because of your need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for your faithful love to us, your people. Oh, Lord, we are needful always of your grace. I pray, Lord, that none would leave this place without knowing the smile of their heavenly Father, without knowing the blood of Jesus that washes us of our guilt and clothes us with the righteousness of Christ, that we might no longer be naked and ashamed, but that we might live as we truly are as a people set apart to you, washed, treasured, loved, kept, and secure in your grace. We consecrate to you now the elements on this table, Lord, that you would bring good news to us who spiritually are poor. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.